BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the subscriber model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $60 a year, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $120 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Rika. We're going to talk about uh, a few different topics today. Uh, I think the main one is going to be making sense of, of, of just what's going on in, in, in Congress right now, because you have, I mean, in a, in a way, this is, this is really what has been going on for the last, I don't know, 15 years I mean, it's, you know, today we see it as, as a feature of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, in some ways, this even goes back to, um, goes back to the, to the 1990s in, in 19, you know, 1995 onward when, um, in that case, when at first Republicans took, uh, took over all of Congress, but really let's, let's think about it from, uh, uh, 2014, give or take, onward. And that's not just because we have the Freedom Caucus, which was originally, I think, a couple dozen members. Now it's like three or four dozen members. Uh, and it's it's not just that they run the House of Representatives when Republicans are in power. That's That's kind of what, that's the that's the standard explanation of, of what's going on. And now we, you know, we, we, there was an agreement to a whole system of funding the government back in May when they got, when they dealt with the debt ceiling issue. Okay. Uh, so we did, so we did that. And then um, the Freedom Caucus uh, very quickly decided that that was not okay what everybody had just uh, agreed to. And they started looking for ways out of that agreement. And and Kevin McCarthy kind of, you know, felt he needed to go along with that. And now he's agreed both to what seems to be an almost certain government shutdown, uh, along with impeaching uh, President Biden over what kind of everybody admits is, is, is literally nothing. Even people who kind of ooh and ah and say there's a gathering cloud over Hunter Biden and all that kind of stuff, even even the most gullible and ingenuous 
of Washington commentators and reporters cannot help but say that, you know, maybe maybe there's going to be a bombshell sometime soon. But so far, not only has there not been a bombshell, there hasn't been anything on President Biden. So they can't even come up with actually what they're impeaching him over. But because of the Freedom Caucus and because uh, Kevin McCarthy wants to hold on to his job, here we are. But really, that it's not even that. This goes back to the beginnings of the Freedom Caucus and the John Boehner era in the House. This is the structure of the Republican Party. You need a Kevin McCarthy type figure. Notionally kind of mainstream, not a crazy, you know, uh, like John Boehner was, who acts as like a figurehead, basically, for the Freedom Caucus which actually runs the Republican Party, not just the Republican House Conference, but actually the Republican Party, even though they're, uh, you know, they make up like, and, and, you know, there's the Freedom Caucus and there's the Freedom Caucus. There's probably 10 or 20 members of the Freedom Caucus who actually kind of run this train and they run the House Caucus. It's as simple as that. They run the House Caucus and uh, you need a Kevin McCarthy-like figure because you can't actually have uh, Jim Jordan be the speaker or Matt Gates, or, I don't know, uh, uh, Lauren Boebert. Although maybe like we're not supposed to mention her for a while, but you get the idea, right? They need, they need that uh, figure because... Being a Republican, certainly being a House Republican, means you agree to do what the Freedom Caucus demands that you do. That's just that's just how it works. You know, it's uh, we keep hearing about. Well, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy's in a pickle now because he's got these, you know, couple dozen. Uh, members of his caucus who are in either Biden districts or kind of, you know, almost Biden districts, and they can't, they can't, uh, you know, they can't support impeachment. And that's why they sort of like, you know, deemed this, this impeachment inquiry to happen, uh, rather than voted on it, which if, if I recall, I think is actually what Nancy Pelosi did the first time. So whatever, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, that the Trump people tried to do was say, this isn't really an impeachment inquiry because you have to vote on it for it to be real. That was one of their arguments. And as I said at the time, you, you can say that and that's a good argument, but the House of Representatives is in charge of what they call an impeachment inquiry. You shouldn't have some judge saying what, what the House is doing. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, make any sense. But that's the structure here. You, this whole idea that Matt Gates or some gr- group of Freedom Caucusers is going to like hit the limit and fire Kevin McCarthy. No, they're not. Because that'd be like firing themselves. They need a Kevin McCarthy type figure. And the only way that Kevin McCarthy will ever be fired is if they come up with another Kevin McCarthy type figure. They have to have someone like that to be themselves. There is a symbiotic relationship uh, between these two things. Now, though, we are in a point in this drama where 
the Freedom Caucus will not even vote for the crazy bill that they have demanded and is already dead on arrival in the Senate. <laughs> so they're, they're, we're now in the point of this drama where there is a struggle between the Freedom Caucus and the Freedom Caucus's own bill, both of which, as I said, are totally dead on arrival in the Senate. They wouldn't even be able to, they, wouldn't, they would be dead on arrival if the Republicans controlled the Senate. But the Democrats control the Senate. And Democrats, you know, this isn't, this is what, and, and a lot of me, a lot of, uh, a lot of you have written in and said, uh, you know, Josh, I, I, I thought the deal with that, um, thought the deal with the debt ceiling limit was that it, it blocked out having a government shutdown standoff at the end of the year. What happened to that? And you know what? Th- that's a good question. And I don't have a totally good answer to that. What, what came out like in the few days after that agreement was, you know, finalized was that one thing that I think everybody thought was in there was not explicitly in there about defaulting to a continuing resolution if the house didn't didn't pass all the bills it needed to pass by the end of the year um and it's still not quite clear to me whether that was just sloppiness on someone's part or whether it was sort of, uh, you know, some kind of a tacit agreement to kind of uh, let that slide as a, as a way to make it all happen. Um, so it's a good point. Clearly, we are here. But here's why that deal was still a great deal, regardless, because a national debt default is a huge, huge, huge deal. It's something that... Um, it's something that the Democrats just can't let happen and weren't going to let happen. But in this case, with uh, the Senate in Democratic hands, if, if, um, if House Republicans want to charge up this hill, it'll suck because a government shutdown is bad. But Democrats have zero incentive to fix that for them. Whereas they were going to have tons of incentive to do almost anything to, to prevent a national debt default. Um, and so here we are. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in a way, I guess it's, I guess it's uh, you know, how, how could we not? How could we not be here? So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, the latest uh, bizarre permutations of what is supposedly the debate about abortion uh, in this country. And we're also going to talk about this super weird thing about what John Fetterman can, how he can dress on the Senate floor, which um, I don't know. I um, I always uh, I've always been a rather casual dresser. Right. And, and as I've as I've as I've entered middle day, middle age, I've sort of settled on one kind of, uh, you know, one kind of suit, a, a sort of a plush white T-shirt and jeans. And I and my big uh, my big concession to the seasons is I switch that to shorts. During the summer, so I'm not like I can't say like I'm a, you know, a fashion horse 
Right. But I must say, even to me, it's a little jarring, the idea someone's going to wear a hoodie and, 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 and shorts on the Senate floor. But why not? I can't, I can't really say I have any good reason why not. And I'm certainly not going to be lectured to by the, the, the party, the, by the decorum demands of, of the party of Lauren Boebert in January 6th. I mean, please. So we're going to talk about we're going to talk about all those things. But before I start, I'm going to quiz Kate on 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 all the all the um, all the back and forth and all the different things that are happening on Capitol Hill because that's her that that's her figurative and literal stomping ground. So we're going to try to get her to explain for us, uh, you know, what's going on. But before that, Kate, you have some stuff you want to we want to, but you are going to kind of uh, let us in on what's 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 going on. Yeah, so uh, we have a new podcast coming out under TPM's banner. It's called Belabor the Point, and it will show up in the Josh Marshall podcast feed, so you don't have to go looking for it. Uh, This pod, to uh, calm any immediate fears, is in addition to our flagship Wednesday show, so we're not going anywhere. Um, It'll feature me as the host, plus rotating TPM staffers and exciting outside guests. Basically, how it came about is that part of what makes TPM tick is our focus on, you know, on ideas, on kind of elucidating the systems that undergird our politics and the narratives that grow out of them. Um, But since we're such a small staff, you know, we only have four total reporters right now. There's kind of a built-in limitation on how widely we can cast our subject matter nets, you know, to kind of get good at something, you have to stay within that beat and do it over and over again. And it just extends, it just limits how, how wide of subjects you can touch. So, and then we have this pod, which is obviously pretty tied to the news of the week. So the point of this new pod is to let us extend out into issues we don't always have the bandwidth to cover. Uh, Some episodes will cover how the new right is hijacking and contorting American masculinity, uh, whether the Inflation Reduction Act was actually a win for climate, how the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going and how the schism within the Republican Party on further aid is affecting it. Um, we have one episode banked already and are just kind of nailing down some final logistics. So keep an eye on your feed or the site or wherever you get the Josh Marshall podcast and come join me on this new audio adventure. Yeah, That's I'm, really, <laughs> yeah I'm really looking forward to it. And I, and I, and I really have no doubt that um, our listeners will as well. And we're, um, you know, for... for um, for reader TPM readers who who may not already be listening to our podcast, um, you know we're gonna we'll, we'll talk about it on the site too to make sure everybody knows about it. And and you know another thing that it will um, allow us to do is we we do sometimes want to interview people, right? There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of good things that come with that. And one thing that I think uh, Kate and I have arrived at over time is this podcast has a has a works as this podcast right we have a certain kind of um you know a certain kind of model we have where where we talk about things we each bring kind of something uh, unique to this conversation but it's really a conversation about about the news of the week and if you if you bring an additional person in there it can kind of throw the dynamic off a little bit. And certainly if you are uh, bringing in another person to talk about something that they know about or they're an expert on or something like that, then it's not a conversation anymore exactly. It's an interview. So this this allows us to do uh, another thing to, as Kate said, 
uh, you know, get it stuff that is not the news of the week and give it its own its own space, right? And not kind of compete with the uh, the sort of the rapport and the setup that we have in in this podcast. You know, there's something you brought up that has nothing at all to do with this um, this podcast or the new podcast, but it it caught my attention because it addresses something that readers bring up all the time, and that is, you know, they'll say this topic, you should cover this topic, you should cover that topic, or don't you think, you know, you, I haven't seen you address this topic or this news story. And um, uh, one of those, you know, one of those things is that we're just small, as Kate said. And um, we have a fifth reporter position that we're hoping to, uh, you know, there's an open position right now. We're hoping in the pretty near future to, uh, you know, have that position filled. And hopefully, if if the finances will stand it, uh, you know, to to get a sixth reporter. But there is something about how we operate that that constrains us. And it's exactly what Kate said. Our sort of, you know, our thing, the thing that we really focus on is knowing certain topics really inside and out. And that means not just the reporter, but also the editors, really understanding the nuts and bolts of, of a story, understanding it in a way that goes beyond just the, you know, the top level level th- themes that you see discussed in a lot of the rest of the press uh, on on the big policy issues, which are most issues, not just not just seeing kind of the headline of the day, whether it's uh, healthcare and health insurance or reproductive health and reproductive rights or voting rights, all these different issues, not just, you know, okay, this person, this side won, that side won, but understanding the policy nuts and bolts in, in, inside those. And it, because to really, to really cover, you know, who's winning and who's losing and who's up and who's down and winning the day and all that kind of stuff, which has its place, you can't do that in any, in any real or meaningful way without understanding, again, the, the inner workings, the policy details. And that's kind of what we do. We, we, we don't uh, put a lot of time into subjects that we can't really get our heads around in that level of detail. And that just inherently limits the, the number of topics that we can cover. Uh, obviously, we make, we make decisions about not just importance, but importance, but also what we think we can bring something uh, unique to. But it just limits it. And so, in a lot of cases, when when you uh, write in saying, "Hey, I haven't seen you address that point," it's almost never that we think that point or that question or that issue isn't important. It's that we're small, and there's 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 only a limited number of uh, subjects that we can really treat in the TPM way. So I'm glad you brought that up as, 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 as a, as, you know, one reason we want to do this pod, because it's, it's something pretty big about our setup and, and uh, gives me an opportunity to sort of address what is a perennial question. Um, and some of it again is our size, you know, uh, become a member if you want to help, if you want to help our, you know, help us increase the size of the operation. Um, but it's also again about what we do. Right. We don't we don't want to, you know, if, if if something huge comes up, the big news of the day, we're going to address that. But it's 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 those issues we really know that we're going to uh, dedicate time to over time. So. So, Kate, OK, 
let, let's get let's get to what is going on on on, on Capitol Hill. So my basic understanding is you've you've had McCarthy basically in essence break the deal he has with Biden certainly the the spirit of it if not the letter of it and already agreed to okay we're going to do more of these cuts right than than we agreed to we're going to cut a bunch of stuff and this is happening while let, let me <laughs> let me back up just for our, just for our listeners well, one more thing um the the biggest gripe of the Freedom Caucus through all of this, and it's the one gripe they have that is actually a gripe with some legitimacy, is to get away from these like occasional omnibus bills where under in a in a crisis setting, the president and the leaders on the Hill kind of just agree to a funding everything about everything bill, and there's like an hour and a half to vote on it, and they vote on it. And the Freedom Caucus people want to go back to regular, what's called regular order. And they're not the only ones who want to go back to it. Um, and that means that the committees each pass a bill. You have a defense appropriations bill. You have a health and human services appropriations bill. And you have all these bills and their hearings and all this kind of stuff. And it goes through regular process. And one of the things that was supposed to be in this agreement is, all right, we're going to go back to regular order, right, this process. And, but they haven't passed any of the bills. The Republicans haven't passed any of the bills. I guess they kind of passed one of them, but now they they, they ditched that one. Meanwhile, the Senate's doing all the stuff. They're passing all their bills. Okay, so little digression there. So, okay, so McCarthy agrees to do kind of like a stopgap continuing resolution that includes a lot more Freedom Caucus goodies. But now the Freedom Caucus, that's not good enough, and they want more yeah. goodies. So. Keep in your minds, everyone, what Josh just said about, you know, regular order versus the big omnibuses that we're used to, because that becomes really relevant when we talk about the Senate. But we'll start with the House. And basically what this, you know, they call it a CR, continuing resolution. The idea is you you more or less keep the government funded at current levels. And this is what Congress has always used to kind of kick the can down the road while they're fighting about the bigger appropriations bills. This specific CR came about from this weekend when you had kind of emissaries of the Freedom Caucus and then the quote unquote mainstream, Main Street Caucus coming together to to flesh this out. And that's supposed to be kind of the hard right wing of the Republicans and then the quote unquote moderate wing of the Republicans. Basically, it you know, they keep kind of advertising it as a 1% cut, but that's an average. And the reality is, you know, you've got the kind of the only agencies that Republicans like. So basically like defense and veterans affairs get don't get touched. And then a lot of the agencies they don't like would get 8% slashed in their budget. Um, it would keep the government funded only for like a month or two. And then there's a sprinkling of kind of border security goodies for the hardliners. The idea being, it's not, it's small, right? It, it doesn't cover that much stuff, but it would be enough to kind of get Republicans to the table. That just fell apart almost immediately because Schumer said, you know, if in any world this passes the House, we are absolutely not passing it in the Senate, which makes sense because it's a very Republican bill. And at the very least, Democrats and Republicans in the Senate have been saying a CR has to have Ukraine aid attached. That's kind of a, a necessary buy-in. And there's a growing contingent of House Republicans that don't want to give Ukraine any more aid. So that's not a part of it at all. So, But the whole idea of it was to be like, here's a compromise thing that House Republicans at the very least can support. And that will make House Republicans look less like kind of planless chaos agents. 
that really came to a grinding halt pretty quickly when a lot of these Freedom Caucus guys who McCarthy has enabled his whole career, that's how he got the gavel, said, yeah, we're not going to vote for this because they're demanding. I mean, I, I, I will... It's not even really a policy ask because they know that there's no kind of legislation that could ever kind of come about to support the drastic cuts in federal spending that they're clamoring for. So it just it makes it a lot less of like, you know, good faith austerity warriors and more just they really want to say no to whatever it is. They're like a lot of them are pretty openly itching for a shutdown. And this gives them a way to kind of backstop it with some kind of policy interest. So There was a dramatic moment Tuesday morning where, you know, the first procedural vote to kind of advance this quote unquote compromise CR leadership had to abruptly pull it from the floor because it became clear that even that first procedural step didn't have the support to pass. Um, You know, there's like, I would say probably 15 or so um, kind of hard right Republicans that are just an unequivocal no on this bill who McCarthy would have to sway. And of course, you know, the bigger picture of what we're talking about here is even if he could do that and pass the CR and I'm sure go on a kind of a peacocky circuit of like, they thought I couldn't do it with the debt ceiling. I did it. They thought I couldn't do it with the CR. I did it. Like, even if that happens and congrats to my Kevin, it won't pass in the Senate. You know, that we're no closer to averting a shutdown then than would we, we would be now when the CR already looks like it's on life support. So isn't, and, and am I right that um, uh, in the, in the Senate, not only are they, you know, passing all their bills, have no interest in, in passing a, not just a Republican and almost like, you know, Republican hostage taking type, you know, type bill. They just don't feel any pressure to, to give way, the, you know, be, I mean, on policy terms, it, it, it is completely unacceptable to them. And I think, but you tell me in political terms, they kind of see this as like, you guys are jumping off a, off a cliff here. So like, we don't want you to, but we're not going to like do a bunch to stop you. I would say that was definitely more the story kind of last week than this week. So far, you know, up until that point, the Senate had been really chugging away. You had Susan Collins and Patty Murray as the head appropriators who, you know, dismissed the House Republican rebellion on the debt ceiling stuff. They were like, no, we're going to write to the spending levels that were agreed upon. They got all their bills passed out of committee. And everything was kind of, you know, the earlier procedural votes last week were, you know, passing on margins of like 92 to 8. You know, it was just really everything was going really smoothly until at the very end of last week, Ron Johnson objected to what they're calling the minibus, which is like a bundle of three of these appropriations bills, three of like the least objectionable ones. You know, they're they're the ones that usually kind of everyone can agree on and everyone can fund and and what have you. He objected to that because he says that he wants a return to regular order. Now, the thing about that is his objection to this like mini clump of bills only makes it more likely that we'll end up with a a monster omnibus that only leadership has seen that, as you say, rank and file gets like an hour to vote on, even though it's a bajillion pages long, that there are no amendment processes for, you know, the things that people in Congress say they hate. And while the this minibus is not like a pure, you know, each 12 of the appropriation bills votes, um, you know, there was going to be an amendment process for both sides, you know, it was very kind of collaborative. So he threw a huge wrench into that process. And now Democrats have set up 
for starting today, a series of procedural votes to basically like circumvent his blockade. Um, Now, the thing about that is we are all of a sudden back in Clocherville, in Filibusterville, and to do basically what they're trying to do is suspend the Senate rules so they can kind of keep plugging along. But to do that, first, they need to overcome the filibuster. So they need 60 votes to kind of procedurally advance. And then they need 67 votes, two thirds of the whole Senate to suspend the Senate rules. And all of a sudden, Senate Republicans are being a lot less of kind of the happy collaborators that they were up until this point. Basically, what they're doing is like saying, you know what, Let's see how things shake out in the House. And we're just going to kind of take a back seat here. Now, on the one hand, it kind of makes sense because it doesn't really matter in this immediate moment in terms of the shutdown, how collaborative and smoothly things are going in the Senate. Because if, you know, say Ron Johnson hadn't done this, they're chugging away, they're getting all their stuff passed, you know, all the appropriations things are going to pass out of the Senate. Well, I mean, look at the absolute chaos in the House right now, at least at this juncture, at this moment, the House would not pass those bills. So we would get a shutdown either way. So basically, the Senate Republicans are kind of, it definitely is a new posture than what they were doing before. It's different than the kind of we're the adults in the room where, you know, senators always have a little bit of snobbery about being in like the the kind of more important, more rational person chamber. Um, and and that was the, the driving theme until late last week. And now they're doing a little bit of we're going to step back and see what Kevin can do with the CR and then maybe we'll kind of revisit things. But while these procedural Democrats are setting up these procedural votes, so they will have to kind of stake out a less squishy position on kind of are you either with Ron Johnson or are you against him right now? Now, isn't isn't there also though? Set that aside. Okay, so so Senate Republicans are pulling out of the kind of consensus love fest mm-hmm. that that they've been having for the last couple months on at least on on the budget passing things with with 90 plus votes but i'm thinking the democrats that that for any of these things that the house is passing or is threatening to pass or whatever for any of that stuff to become law democrats in the senate need to say okay yes matt gates you've you've you have rolled us over. You have intimidated us. We are going to do your bidding and and pass uh, either the crazy thing you passed or we're going to meet in the middle and settle for 50% crazy. But to, are Democrats feeling that heat? I sense nothing about that, 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 that they see this as certainly disastrous in policy terms, but also in political terms, pretty much totally out of the Republican hide. Exactly. And I think even if they were kind of inclined to be you know, the the compromise people here, there's not there's nothing to compromise on. You know, the House does not look like it's going to be able to get this CR through, much less anything else. They also had to pull or they had a failed vote on the defense bill yesterday, which is supposed to be one that Republicans are pretty eager to fund. So while the House isn't just in like abject chaos, it doesn't I mean, it behooves Senate Democrats to mostly just walk around and say, you know, I'm ready to to pass bills, to like be a rational kind of government actor. Um, they're the ones who are screaming at each other on the House floor. You know, this is and, and kind of molding that into the the campaign stuff, you know, like this, you guys put Republicans in charge of the House and look how that's going, you know. And now when we have the 
additional levels of the fact that we are almost certainly going to have a shutdown that's probably going to be the easiest to pin on House Republicans of like all the shutdowns we've had, especially in this Tea Party era. Um, And then also you got the impeachment stuff going on in the House, which, you know, as we talked about last pod, might transpire while the government is shutting down because House Republicans refuse to kind of negotiate like adults. So I think to Democrats, this is all uh, it's a pretty easy for the public to understand. It's a pretty kind of clean shot. Um, So yeah, I mean, there's definitely no sweating coming from the Democratic contingent at this point. It's funny, I was watching, uh, I was watching, it's sort of a live broadcast that the folks over at the Bulwark do, kind of like a pod, but they do it as a live feed, something we we may actually uh, try sometime in the, in the near future. But in any case, Dynamics of the Pod got their whole crew there. And they were, deta- and first of all, I'm a huge fan of the Bulwark, um, even in cases where I don't agree with their policy ideas, um, you know, it's one of the few other publications I I, I make sure to check in on. Um, in any case, they were talking about this um, shutdown issue. And one of the things that uh, I think it was Mona Sharon said, um, and uh, well, let me say what she said. She said, you know, the, the uh, Democrats are the party of government. So when the government shuts down, sort of inherently Republicans are going to get the blame because they're the anti-government Democrats are the party of government. So when the government is attacked, of course, it's the Republicans' fault. And there's some there's something to that. But I think she misses what is uh, really the overwhelming reason why Republicans always get blamed. And that is because it's always Republicans doing it. I mean, you can't be any more clear than that. It really is. You never... I mean, there's there are a few times where some kind of, you know, dissident Democrats or a few Democrats will kind of say, hey, we need to kind of, you know, be a little gangster here and we need to threaten to shut the government down to get what we want. But whenever that happens, almost everybody in the party is like, no, 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 no. That is not the kind of people we are, right? And and the reality, I mean, this goes back to back in uh, this really got started. You had some technical government shutdowns before the mid 90s, where they're like, you know, kind of putting together some final agreement and they're an hour late. Right. So that kind of thing. But it really gets started in 1995. And Newt Gingrich totally openly, you know, we are the ball busters here. Bill Clinton's weak. We are going to shut the government down if you do not do what we tell you to do. We are going to do it. This is before they got around to the idea of it's super unpopular. So trying to explain like, we didn't do it, you did it, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Um, And then Clinton allowed it to happen and they were clobbered. But just the reality is it's always them who do it. It's them who do it. And it may be them who do it because the Democrats are the party of government and, and being chaos agents doesn't just, A, doesn't occur to them and doesn't come naturally in the same way, but they're going to get blamed because they're doing it. You know, you could, it's not even a matter of their, um, of their ideological, or at least their, their notional 
ideological position because you could say, look, we are not going to compromise. We need even more cuts, but like we haven't figured it out yet. So, okay, we're going to just kick the, you know, we're going to do a little CR and just kind of give everybody a little more time. Um, they're not, they're not doing that. They won't even, they're, they're, they're fighting this thing, even on the thing to give a little more time to fight about. They can't agree to stop fighting on the thing to get more time to fight. And uh, so, you know, they're they're going to get blamed because they're doing it. it it's, it's, it's kind of as, as, as simple as that. And, and one thing I do think for everybody out there, and to the extent that you talk to your friends and colleagues or something like that, it's it's easy and it's it gets easy for Democrats sometimes to get into this idea. Susan Collins and Patty Murray, they're over there being adults, doing the right thing, passing the bills, you know, doing their civic duty. And, and that's true. But let's remember, they're passing it on the basis of what Republican Republicans extorted back in May. This isn't like what the Democrats want. This is what the Republicans forced as the price to get them not to force the government, the the federal government, into default. Now, Joe Biden basically kind of cleaned their clock because they didn't get him to agree to very much relative to what they, you know, what they wanted. But that is what they're what what they're passing. So you you know, the Freedom Caucus folks. you know, when they're not off gallivanting at musical theater performances, right? They're going to say like, well, what about what we want? You know, we want, we want to cut government, blah, 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 blah. Um, even though that's not something they did, you know, under, under Donald Trump. But that's already, what, <laughs> that's already what we're passing, what they wanted, what they got, what they were able to, um, what they were able to negotiate. So, I certainly, I certainly don't think the Democrats should be wanting to sort of compromise to stave this off, but I don't think they are wanting it because this is, this is, it doesn't mean like, you know, Joe Biden's going to win re-election over it, but to the extent that I think people can see what's, you know, what's happening here. Yeah. And I think on the point of, you know, who's going to get blamed kind of thing this time, maybe more than any other you're having Republicans be pretty candid on what the dynamics here are. You know, Senate Republicans have not, have certainly not kind of shied away from blaming the House people, you know, saying, no, we don't want to shut down. No one wants to shut down. Just this select group wants to shut down. And now increasingly, especially especially after this kind of quote unquote compromise CR came out, you've got a lot of House Republicans who are, especially the ones who are in the vulnerable Biden seats, who are going very public and saying, you know, you had Mike Lawler kind of talking to a whole group of reporters on the steps of the Capitol yesterday saying, this isn't conservative Republicanism. This is people who, you know, don't want to say yes to anything, who can't recognize a win. This is a clown show. Um, And part of that is, you know, the House Republicans who have come up in the Trump era, who are even more aggressive versions of the Tea Party precursors who were even then kind of settled their whole ideology on on breaking the government um, and being obstructionist at every turn. Now you have that plus um, the new kind of layer of social media performance art. So that's how you get, you know, creatures like Matt Gates, who's like, what possible incentive is there to for Matt Gates to vote 
yes on anything. You know, he's getting media attention. He's going to get to make a big little speech that's like, all right, shut it down. You know, we didn't get what we wanted. I mean, there's just the it's I always go back to that story of uh, the former Madison Cawthorn, uh, his office, how he only hired comm staff and not legislative staff, because it's such a perfect encapsulation of what this kind of Trump era House Republican is about, even more than their kind of uh, precursors. So, yeah, I mean, it's just you had reporting Uh, clearly kind of leaked from the closed door meeting where McCarthy angrily told everyone, um, we're going to lose the shutdown if we don't start passing some bills, uh, you know, and of course, his speakership, as always, is kind of on the hook. And then meanwhile, you've got to the fact to the to the extent that Democrats are in conversations with Republicans, it's already about how to reopen the government. It's about an ultimate CR that much like the debt ceiling bill could be passed on the backs of House Democrats plus the non-burn-it-all-down House Republicans kind of under McCarthy's stewardship. So, you know, it's like you say, this is just not one where you have to go digging for who's going to get blamed. And I don't think there's a lot of calculus to do here, especially because you just have so many Republicans on the record saying like, yeah, there's a handful of pains in the asses in the House Republican caucus that are going to shut us down. You know, there's uh, Mike Lawler. I mean, I think of him as impeachment Mike. (laughs) I I, I sort of have a fondness for his district. I spend a lot of time there. Um, But what I, I do wonder if they thought about it, if you if you put these two out of control trains together, if you if you sort of look at look at each, the trajectory of each one, it does seem like it is highly likely you'll have a situation where House Republicans are spending all of their time impeaching Joe Biden while the entire federal government is shut down or, you know, there's the essential services, non-essential mm-hmm. services kind of thing. But I, I, the, um, the optics of that and the counter messaging are just so good. Democrats are going to be able to say like, okay, the government is shut down. You know, people aren't getting their services. Uh, you know, all these people are out of work, blah, 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 blah. And, but, but, you know, the, the House Republicans have their eye on the ball. They're focused on 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 coming up with a reason they're going to impeach Joe Biden. Um, I mean, I guess it, you know, if it went on long enough, I mean, the federal government is a pretty big industry, right? So it can it can have some non-trivial impacts on on, on the economy if you have uh, a few million people out of, you know, uh, not not drawing paychecks. But um, yeah, well, there you, there you go. Yeah. And Let's take that out one one kind of logical step further. So say the government shuts down, say House Republicans kind of bully McCarthy into designating as essential, you know, the impeachment investigators, and that's going on. If there's an effort to reopen the government at any point in this, it's what it's what I said, right? It'll be House Republicans, moderate Republican or House Democrats, moderate Republicans, plus McCarthy. That is a situation that's much like what happened with the debt ceiling. And it's kind of hard to see how McCarthy would keep his gavel in that situation. Like we already have Matt Gates talking all the time about, you know, putting forward the motion to vacate, to boot him out. And 
a lot of House Republicans are making noise about. If you ever kind of work with House Democrats again, that's what we're going to do. Now, again, we've talked about this before. Not that it's an empty threat, but to the extent of there's no obvious replacement for McCarthy. It's not like they've been thinking hard behind the scenes of who could kind of get the majority of people, blah, blah, blah. All of that still exists. But it just all of it triangulates to put McCarthy in the pain, most painful kind of worst situation, which he has wrought by his own hand by letting these people, you know, by being as responsible as anyone else for kind of letting this wildfire burn out of control. And now that's a sizable chunk of his tiny majority. Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is the definition of being the head of the Republican House caucus. It is it's not really being the head. It it, it is doing it it is a a sort of uh nonstop dignity loss performance art on behalf of the people who actually run the House caucus, which is the Freedom Caucus. And, you know, they run it because, you know, you've got Mike Lawler and these other guys, you know, kind of kind of crying and moaning and everything. But at the end of the day, they'll they'll go ahead and vote with what the Freedom Caucus tells them to do, because that's 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 what it means to be a House Republican. That's just how it works. Exactly. OK, so let's move on to the uh, the Trump abortion debate, which I have to say, I found baffling because when I first saw his comment, um, I saw it more in uh, a kind of, uh, I guess, a roundup of how that NBC interview had gone because Kristen Welker is in some big new role on Meet the Press. And well, she, it's, her, it's her show now. Right. She's, so, she's the host now. Yeah. And uh, what's his name? Chuck what? Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd. Yeah. Moving on had, to greener pastures. Right. Had stepped down. And Meet the Press, I think, had kind of become... Uh, the symbol for all of this kind of big network, both sidesism stuff. So anyway, there were a lot of eyes on that. And so I saw it in that context less than in the abortion context itself. And when I heard him say it, that the, the six-week ban was terrible, or DeSantis's six-week ban specifically, I was struck not by Trump like repositioning on abortion or anything, but that this is what Trump does sometimes that very few politicians do, which is he will occasionally just become utterly transparent about the political calculations underlying policy decisions. And politicians almost always cloak that with, you know, highfalutin kind of blah, 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 moral virtue, whatever. And when Trump said it was terrible, it was just like immediately clear to me he was saying politically terrible, right? Like hard for the party because it pisses off, you know, majorities in almost every state even in, you know, and and makes Republicans mad and people think it's draconian and all the rest. And I kind of took that as like, you know, he's right. He's doing his like kind of political calculations out loud um, in a way that most Republicans only do in kind of like anonymous quotes to Politico or whatever. So to see the flurry of coverage that positioned it as Trump is uh, yanking the rug out from the Democrats on abortion, like he's going to steal all the Dobbs energy. It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, when push came to shove, Nobody in the world thought that Trump actually cared about abortion. Like, that's ridiculous. But the reason that evangelicals kind of were still willing to go along with him is because he said that he would put anti-Roe judges, justices on the Supreme Court, which famously he put enough of them there to overturn Roe to keep his promise. And it's just insane to me to think that we could go into this campaign and Trump could reposition as 
the dude in the room who's just trying to be kind of rational about abortion. A, because we've seen politicians try to do it before and it's impossible because any kind of ban you support that would be enough for the anti-abortion, you know, nut jobs is going to be the kind of ban that produces all the gruesome stories that we're hearing now. And B, because Trump is the guy who is most responsible for overturning Roe, something which he takes credit for like all the time. Just how, what a silly kind of we're in a slightly like boring time in the presidential campaign. It's still really far out. And we're like looking for uh, dynamic changing stories to create headlines. And this is what it seems that a wide swath of reporters have settled on. Yeah, it it, it does. Um First of all, it really assumes voters are really dumb, yeah. and and um, I, I at some level, I, I I can't say there's not sometimes evidence for that, but voters don't tend to be really dumb on issues they care a lot about. They uh, may you know act in ways that you find irrational on issues that, eh, you know, kind of that they have a some interest in or some engagement with. Um, voters who are uh, very uh, unconnect, you know, have, have, are very untethered from the political process um, may not surprisingly not have a very deep understanding of politics that sort of goes with you know, I mean, if you're if you're not very connected to the world of hockey, you probably won't understand how that sport operates. That's that's obvious. Um, but neither of those apply to abortion. You know, people. I mean, it 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 is striking that for the last, um, not just for the last year, arguably for the last uh, two and a half years, the national political conversation has been about uh, inflation, has been about the continuing arguments about masks and vaccines. It's about wokeness. It's about uh, China and whether China is, is you know, uh, getting stronger than America, all this kind of stuff. And yet for the last year plus, every time we've had an election, uh, abortion turns out to be the driving issue. Now, to some extent, you know, when we say have an election, they tend to be elections about abortion, but that kind of makes the same argument, it makes the same point because that's the big issue, right? And as much as, I mean, look, it's not that we're the only publication that talks about Dobbs. I mean, people talk about Dobbs, but it's almost never kind of like, this is the big issue. Like, what are they talking about on Capitol Hill? Are they talking about Dobbs? Are they talking about how you know, angry buddy, angry everybody seems to be about 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 the Dobbs decision. Whereas when you look at elections, that's what it seems to be about. And um, you know, we just had a special election uh, in New Hampshire, legis uh, special election for the New Hampshire legislature. And and you know, to be just to keep it real here, uh, you know, legislative elections in New Hampshire, they, they've got like. A legislator of like eight legislature of like eight thousand people. The constituencies are like five hundred people each. So I mean, they're not, not literally, but pretty close, honestly. Uh, the, you know, you can't say these are big, you know, big elections the way that the one in Kansas was, or um, these, you know, these 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 various uh, special elections. But Democrats keep seeming to win special elections, like kind of upset wins of of, of, of special elections. And there's even there's even one uh, school of thought that says, well, you'd think that would bode well for Democrats, but maybe not. And 
that's a little counterintuitive. And there's actually some argument here. The argument is basically that, you know, we used to always think like, oh, low, low turnout elections. That's, you know, Republicans, they are the kind of uh, settled wealthier folks. It's the old older people who always show up for elections. But now the more educated people who always vote, they're Democrats. So, you know, maybe, but like sometimes, you know, kind of sometimes it's Occam's razor, right? Democrats are always doing well in the, in the, in, in the only actual elections we see. Maybe, maybe there's something we don't get about what's going on in the country. And at least on abortion, I mean, that is the issue. And, and these other issues, people don't seem to really be, seem to really be voting on. And, and, you know, I, I got into this whole uh, digression that on issues people really care a lot about, they tend to know what's not be, not be total idiots. And there is this kind of inside the beltway idea that things that are really obvious, things that are obviously very determinative in, in our politics, that some just kind of too clever by half thing is going to be able to change that. Um, and I don't think so. And more broadly, you know, I really, really hope Democrats are going to jump into whatever Trump is coming up with here, because, you know, not to not to mention the sort of the the all the age stuff about Biden. You know, you got Trump out there last week who seemed to get confused for a moment, think he was running against Barack Obama. Right. And now he just like he he forgot what his position was on abortion. I mean, you know, did we forget that like the whole the whole thing of co- you know cognitive uh, cognition tests becoming a political issue is about Donald Trump. But it, but setting that aside, if Donald Trump wants to spend the entire next fourteen months talking about does he support a six week ban or an eight week ban or a ten week ban, man, let him talk about that constantly because none of those are popular. None of them. Not one of those bans is popular. It's really clear that an overwhelming amount of the po- population wants to go back to Roe, or really Roe Plus, because in a lot of the country, Roe was pretty thin. It was, you know, it, they were allowing so many like, oh, you can have an abortion, but you've got to have three preliminary meetings, and you've got to bring your butler and your <laughs> mother-in-law, and all, all this kind of nonsense that it was almost, you know, it was almost impossible to get. But I mean... The whole thing is really unpopular. And, you know, if 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 Donald Trump really wants to say that he's he's going to be in, he's going to mix it up and be the most pro-choice president ever in round two, let him say that. Let's 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 let that let's let that play out. See how that goes. So, so there's just nothing here for um, there's nothing here for Democrats to be scared of that. He's going to people aren't stupid enough to, to get confused about who who's on what side of the abortion issue. Yeah, that's such a good point about um, issue salience for kind of low information voters, because I do think that's something that Democrats, you know, kind of rightly stress about constantly because there's such a connection between that dynamic and the fact that Democrats can pass kind of like wildly popular legislation and get zero credit for it. But, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that's was one of kind of the biggest political events it's going to be this decade. I mean, everyone knows about that. Everyone knows how it came about. You know, I think most people even know the names of the justices who did it. So, yeah, I mean, just the idea that voters would be like, yeah, he's right. He is a pro-choice guy. It's just like, <laughs> come on. 
come on. Yeah, it, it's it's it is you you have to be deep in that axios, not even twelve dimensional chess, but like he said this, you'll never guess what happens next. You know, this, this, this whole kind of, you're gonna, I don't know, just, just again, just too clever by half nonsense that that's going to matter. And I, and I do, you know, this is the, this is your beat here at TPM, but I always come back to the fact that it's clear. This is an earthquake in American Mm -hmm. politics. And as much as it kind of gets talked about, it's seldom the issue that national political conversations are about. It's so funny because I think for a long time, abortion was siloed off as one of the quote unquote kind of activist subject areas and that kind of stuff. And I mean, you can lump in like gay marriage to that trans stuff now. It all just gets handled so differently. I mean, even the kind of uh, quote unquote defund the police, all that stuff that gets handled at this remove for for kind of quote like big legacy publications like you have to treat everyone involved um like they have all these kind of ulterior motives and it it's just really kind of pushed to the side as a, a very specific coverage area whereas reporters love to write about how the trials and tribulations of the economy is affecting campaigns, right? Like that is suddenly, that's not a subjective thing, even though obviously it totally is. It's That's a bread and butter issue. That's a thing you can write about without worrying about being biased or, you know, you can keep all the trappings of a objective journalist and write about how the economy is going to tank Biden's reelect bid. But it's, you can tell that people are still so struggling to come to terms with the fact that abortion is salient and super powerful and that an issue belonging to any kind of like out group, you know, in this case, women is that much a driver of political dynamics. I think the, if there's any, it's not a justification, but if there's any explanation for why it was long covered that way, it was precisely because of the dynamics of Roe. That Republicans, you know, Republicans and Democrats could go into every election saying, you know, Republicans, we are going to, you know, life begins at conception, you know, pushing their line, uh, Democrats pushing their line. But voters got very used to the fact over 40 plus years, and I say 40, not 50, because the abortion wasn't wasn't that politicized in as a national political issue for the first decade or so, uh, you know, first seven or eight years. Anyway, um, that abortion was still legal. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a huge issue everybody cares about, but uh, it, you know, kind of, it didn't change, but then it did change and everything changed. And so that's, that I think is another kind of part of it that you could, that even a lot of, uh, you, you can see the difference that, that a lot of, you certainly see it with not sure conservative women, but a lot of, um, a lot of more educated, affluent women who voted for Republicans. As long as like, you're like, wow, how can you be in a, you know, in a, in an, in an anti-abortion rights party? Well, you know, there is Roe. So, you know, <laughs> people can talk about, oh, you know, kind of pro-life, but it, it doesn't actually happen now. You know, the details, it was happening in red states. It was getting harder and harder, but everything kind of changes when, when, when suddenly it gets real. And that's kind of why it is this kind of, 
you know, earthquake in our, in our politics. Totally. And, you know, one, um, person who's been kind of very on the inside of, um, you know, abortion litigation on the side of trying to expand rights, uh, told me somewhat recently that for a long time, the anti-abortion movement was so successful in using reasonableness to kind of excuse everything they were doing. So with the laws you're talking about, like the trap laws, closing down clinics, requiring a ton of visits, requiring, um, you know, doctors to show women their ultrasounds and, and try to redirect them to crisis pregnancy centers, all of that kind of stuff was done under this cloak of reasonableness of, you know, we're just trying to make sure the we're taking care of the woman, you know, we're making sure she has all the materials that she needs, which, of course, people on the other side of the, the debate have for decades been saying, you know, not only is that paternalistic and treating women like children instead of adults, but also, you know, has all these gruesome end results. But that all just went out the window with Dobbs. You can't even pretend that anymore. So it really just has been like yanking the curtain down and you know, again, looping back to how we started this, even low information voters are just, you can't really have wool over your eyes about what the reality is at this point. Yeah. And I mean, with, with a lot of things, you know, we talk about what are the big issues? Trans rights, Ukraine, Joe Biden's age, wokeness, right? All these different kinds of things. Now, some of these things, if you're trans, trans rights is pretty huge issue, right? Um, and not only if you're trans, but every woman can get pregnant. I mean, obviously some women have problems getting, but you get, you get the idea. Um, and all the things that go along with reproductive rights and a lot, I mean, women have many, many women have male partners. Sometimes the male partners don't care as much as they should, but a lot of them care a lot. So my, my point is, when we talk about like low information voters, low salience issues, you know, the reality is what happens in Ukraine, you can just stop listening to that and it's probably not going to have anything to any impact on your life whatsoever. And most political issues, at least in the short term, are like that is, you know, is, is, did a, did a book that mentions trans kids get banned in florida well if you don't live in florida that doesn't have a, have a lot to do with your life unless you choose to have it have a lot to do with your life it applies to so many issues but pregnancy is foundational to the human experience so it's kind of always going to be a fairly high saliency issue just inherently right um just makes the same point it's 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 different it's different. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's never going to be a, a kind of a, a, a vague, low saliency issue. Like, I don't know, you know, is there, is there a 25% or 30% tax credit for solar panels? Right? right. Pregnancy is foundational. All right. So we're going to round off the show with the, uh, the most important topic of the week, which is there has been a change in the Senate dress code. Basically, Schumer just told the Senate sergeant at arms to stop enforcing it. So technically, there is still a dress code, but um, people are no longer going to be chided for not wearing ties on the House floor. And this has become just a right wing like hysteria outbreak um, because 
you know, John Fetterman is now in the Senate and has been walking around in his kind of habitual hoodie and shorts, which elevated him to near folk hero status when he was running in his campaign. Um, And so it's all been kind of like linked to him. And also this coincides with Fetterman. He's more recovered than I've ever seen him in the Senate at the beginning. um, His people were guarding him really closely. They wouldn't let him do hallway interviews, really, Um, even when people had them written down because, you know, he's had some of the auditory processing stuff that he's still dealing with. But especially in the past, like, month or so, he's really just been coming into his own again. He's been more comfortable, like, joking with reporters. They're still kind of, they're using the text aids for him, but it's, everything's seeming to come along a lot easier. And also, you know, on top of his own personal stuff, there is always a bit of an adjustment period for new members where a lot of them are really, really nervous at the beginning and not accustomed to kind of being open to being besieged by reporters all the time. Because, you know, especially if they came from Most of them came from a much less consequential office um, or, you know, even if the campaign trail was their big experience, then usually their exposure to reporters is limited and predictable and they can kind of prepare. So for some of them, you know, that that looks like sprinting through the areas where reporters are pretending to be on the phone or using their staff as kind of like, oh, no, 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 I need to brief her on something right now. She can't talk to you, that kind of thing. Um, But he's talking a lot more. He's getting comfortable. He's getting funny, which, you know, was the big hallmark of his campaign. And so now you got all this closed stuff and you have all these senators kind of freaking out and being like, you know, I guess the dignity of the Senate rests upon us wearing suits. Um, And this also is happening at the same time that on the far right there are all these conspiracy theories about Fetterman having a body double. <laughs> and I, so, I didn't know about that until a couple days ago. Yeah. <laughs> so his campaign is kind of having fun with both both of these things at once. Um, kind of right before we started recording, his he sent out a statement that I swear to God, every single reporter tweeted out where he said, if those jagoffs in the House stop trying to shut down our government and fully support Ukraine, then I will save democracy by wearing a suit on the Senate floor next week. So, you know, just kind of leaning into his his shtick. Um, and it is funny because it's so predictable that the senators would like freak out. And I kind of take your point from the beginning. It is weird to think about people kind of being in their casual duds on the Senate floor. But the reality is a lot of lawmakers kind of dress down at the end of the week when they're going to, you know, spend half their day flying back home to their states or districts. Um, There's always been kind of allowances made for some and not for others, right? Like you can have kind of the Southern dudes get away with like, seersucker or, you know, different kind of things where everyone else wears dark suits. You always have the constant litigation over like what women wear in formal settings. Um, So to me, it's kind of like, okay, I'll just say I so don't care about this. Like I like dressing up at the Capitol, but that's because I just like dressing up in general. And almost everyone is not going to change their ways. Plus, There is always the generational kind of pushing at the norms, right? Like you have some younger people in the house now who wear fancy sneakers instead of uh, dress shoes. And I'm sure that's like appalling to some segments of, you know, uh, of the population. But it's the kind of thing where 
it doesn't really matter. It's silly. Republicans are having a field day. Fetterman's having fun with it. I don't know. I kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I, I am. I am losing absolutely no sleep over it. And um, I will say that, you know, I suspect, you know, Republicans are having a field day over it on on Fox. I don't think they're having a field day like anybody giving a crap what they say about it. But let me ask you this. Do we it the, the way that and maybe this is part of the the Republican freak out itself. But the initial news reports I saw almost made it seem like, you know, John Fetterman cannot <laughs> is, is basically barred from the Senate floor because his you know, he is unable, you know, there are no suits his size. He has to wear <laughs> gym shorts and a hoodie. So this is just justice for John Fetterman. Do we know? I mean, I didn't know this was even an, an issue. Do we know why this happened? Was he pushing for it? Were other people like, what's the deal? Not as far as I can tell. What he's been doing is like he wears suits where he when he goes to hearings. So they do make suits right. big enough right. for John Fetterman. Um, but when he's just kind of like, you know, most of senators' days are traipsing back and forth from their offices to the Senate floor to vote and back. And so the voting bit, you know, it's not we're not having big Stephen Douglas debates on the Senate floor. They go in, they tell the clerk, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down and they leave. Um, so he's been kind of voting from the door of right, the chamber so right, it doesn't right, have right. to change. Um, oh, got it, got it. OK, got it. Got so, it, got yeah, it, yeah, I mean, and already you saw there. Some and that's guys, allowed, right? You can like just from the, the I, yeah I, other people do that too you can be you can be technically not on the senate floor and just outside the door and kind of signal right. signal what your vote they just is. need to see you put your vote in um yeah so you know we already some people kind of lost their ties right after this happened you know it's a kind of it's funny because it's such it's such good fodder for that. You know, you can you can see it in your head, that specific kind of column that's like, you know, this is just one way in which our government is going downhill. Decorum is gone. Respect for the institution is gone. When it's like, in reality, basically everyone is going to keep wearing what they were wearing before. Well, I imagine these like, it's funny, like now I now I'm it. I, I just opened up an article and there's a picture of, you know, Kirsten Cinema in a I don't know what to call it. It looks like a, a kind of a skin tight dress made out of silver tinfoil. I have no idea. <laughs> right. And kind of like whatever. Right. You know, just like that's that's there's a whole other um, properly a minefield about, you know, how how closely are you going to litigate and judge what women dress? Uh, and so um I guess that's that's something other people are are are, are making a deal. But I was just curious because I didn't know, you know, I I it, I didn't know this was a hot button issue. I didn't know there was a big push, and it was kind of presented as, you know, John. Fe it was, but you know, like the John Fetterman Bill of Rights kind of thing, <laughs> or the you know, or <laughs> justice for John Fetterman. Right. Um, so I don't know, but it sounds like maybe he that kind of uh, uh, pushed it a little. Right pushed it a little further, but who knows? Uh, one one anecdote of this that I really liked is apparently um, Joe Manchin went to talk to Fetterman to basically tell him, like, I'm going to oppose this. I'm going to full-throatedly oppose this, but like, you know, it's, it's not about you, man, whatever. Like, I just feel really strongly about this. And it's like, okay, Manchin, like, <laughs> that's, you can tell that he's kind of fallen from relevance since the Build Back Better days and now needs something new to, to kind of wail about. Well, I saw the thing where they say he's going to, he's going to fight it. And I was like, does he think it's like that the Fetterman suit is mandatory now? 
Right. <laughs> but he's got to he's got to walk around in a hoodie. I mean, I don't. I, I I guess I don't know. I guess they could. I'm not even. I'm not even. I was going to say you could change the rules back, but as you put it, the rules haven't changed. He's just, you know, it's kind of like um, it's it it's sort of like how we've how we've operated with marijuana policy for yeah. the last decade. You know, marijuana is still elite against the law nationally, but we just like, hey, we're just, we're not going to enforce it. So that's kind of that's where we are with uh, hoodies. Yep, on the Senate floor right now. Right, okay. exactly. So I guess that's that. Uh, that is about all we have uh, for this week. As 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 Kate told you, we have a we have a, a new pod. We are going to be debuting in in the near future, and at least for the foreseeable future, it'll be in the same stream. Right, it'll be in. So if you've already subscribed to our podcast, it's going to come to you in the same stream. You don't have to worry about subscribing to another podcast. So um, you will be uh, hearing it, and you can you can you can you can uh, check out what you think. I think it'll be great. I think it's a good uh, expansion of the stuff we're doing in the in the podcast realm, as they put it. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, I think that's about all we have for for this week. So that's it. All right. See you next week. See ya. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.